I just love that they were chanting lock him up. <laughs> it's come full circle to bite him in the ass, the old lock him up. They were saying lock him up. At the World Series, they were chanting lock him up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were just chanting lock him up to Trump. It's so good. Well, another theory is this, is that, like, the managerial nature of this country is such that, like, Trump has rocked the boat too far for, like, just any normie, no matter what you consider yourself, that yeah. people just want to return to this sense of, you know, normalcy or whatever. And I think, I mean, really and truly, I think that's what's at the crux of what we're going to be talking about today with this article. But, uh, yeah, I just think that... Uh, probably has less to do with you know anything else than just that um well before we get into that i brought a really funny editor's note i wanted you to see this is this is hands down the funniest editor's note i've ever seen in the speaker <laughs> in speak your piece not legal. yeah it's gonna be a good one it's, it's, fun, it's hands down the funniest fucking editor's note in speak your piece so here's the speak your piece how about Mitt Romney hiding behind the name Pierre Delecto to put out a bunch of garbage? That's par for the course for a politician. <laughs> so, you're familiar with Pierre Delecto, right? No. Mitt Romney had an alt Twitter account, and the name was Pierre Delecto. That was the username on it. Really? I, yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, Ashley Feinberg, who I think writes for the Huffington Post, or... Maybe she's moved on to somewhere else now, but she she like figured out that that's his alt account, um, like did some digging and figured out that that is his, and so then he owned up to it. He said, "Wow, he admitted it." Yeah, I am indeed pure delecto. <laughs> that's the best in Tron, Mexico. <laughs> Wait, you remember Michael Vick was getting herpes treatment under the name uh, Ron Mexico? <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah, that's better than Ron Mexico. <laughs> Yeah, Prince um, also had some good ones. I'm reading his memoirs that he would check into hotels with that were just like cartoonishly over the top. That one was like uh, Peter. Fuck, I have to look at it. Whatever it was, but it was like I don't know. Like you would know it was Prince that checked in under that name. <laughs> Peter Rince. Uh, <laughs> Peter R. Ince. <laughs> um, so then the editor, then the Mountain Eagle speaks as it so rarely does. Um, but I will say that more and more he's been speaking. He's been speaking so fucking much lately. Um, and by that, if you've listened to the show enough, you'll know that the editor who we're speaking of, has a liberal bent. And so this is the most liberal response to a speaker piece I've ever seen. It's so fucking funny. After U.S. Senator Mitt Romney admitted to being Pierre Delecto, it was quickly pointed out that he isn't the first politician to hide behind the pseudonym. Among those in the public eye who have hidden behind an assumed name are James Madison, Publius, Alexander Hamilton, Fosion. Eric Holder, Henry Yearwood, Rex Tillerson, Wayne Tracker, <laughs> Peter Navarro, Ron Vara, Anthony Weiner, Carlos Danger, and Donald Trump, John Miller, John Barron, David Dennison. Interestingly, Madison wrote the Federalist Papers under the fake name he was using while Hamilton hid behind his false name to criticize Thomas Jefferson. And so what I like about this is basically... 
You had a softball here. You had a guy writing in talking shit about one of the most despised people in American politics, Mitt Romney. And you and you all sided it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Basically, yeah, you come out and you say, well, hey, it's not that beyond the pale. Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. James Madison wrote the whole Federalist Papers. Go back almost 200 years <laughs> And I bet he was so fucking proud of that. He thought that was the greatest breaking journalism in this week's issue. Absolutely. Of all, all month. <laughs> Absolutely. I forgot about Carlos Danger being Anthony Wieners. I did too. I that's, did. Uh, that's a little too on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> right. I didn't know John Donald Trump had three. I didn't either. I don't know about none of these. The best... I remember John Barron, because remember he would like call in the newspapers, pretend to be this John Barron character? Oh, yeah. And he would put on a fake voice and everything, and I think the New York Times even had audio of it. You can tell it's basically Trump. Trying to <laughs> not sound so Queensish. Oh, shit. He has like an East Kentucky accent. <laughs> um, well... There's your speak your pieces for this week. Um, pretty goddamn ridiculous. Um, which brings me, uh, which brings us to the next topic of import. Um, ethics. Ethics. <laughs> Business ethics. So I want to yeah. read something to you both that was in. Um, what was it? Politico? Yeah. Politico, what was it called? What's your top Politico article that pops up? What is it? It was... Um, Man in the Middle. Man, what is that? What's I don't know. <laughs> Inside War on Coal. <laughs> Politics, Government, Congress. Okay. Christian Evangelical Conservatives. <laughs> okay. Uh, don't pay any mind to any of those articles you just saw. Politico has a column... Or a segment called How to Fix Politics. Um, what? This is like a whole... You're joking. Oh, they have their own logo. No, and not only that, they have featured such esteemed writers in their How to Fix Politics segment um, as Charles Koch. <laughs> That's one of them. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, Charlemagne the God. Uh, Jill I Lepore. Um, Alicia Garza's on there, though. All people who know how to fix politics. Um, <laughs> all the people with the answers. That's right. And so... I love that the little logo has an elephant and a donkey on an it. An elephant and a donkey. <laughs> how to bring us all together. Ooh, is there, anything, is there anything more liberal than trying to fix the partisan divide? <laughs> you would think that Politico wouldn't want that. It feels like it's better for their bottom line to have people fighting, but... um. Well, um, so right. So as part of their segment, uh, they had an entry a few weeks ago called "What Teaching Ethics in Appalachia Taught Me About Bridging America's Partisan Divide." Subtitle: There's a language for talking about hot button issues, and we're not learning it. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> By Evan Mandery. Letter from North Carolina. So this this made the rounds. I'm going to switch to this computer now. Um, yeah, that's right. We've got two computers here. Um, how, did this, how did this perform in the app study circles? You know, I didn't see it 
I didn't. I didn't. You know, one of us should really bite the bullet and join that stupid listserv. Listserv for just for content. I got out once. I can't go I back know, in. Same. I got you. Tom. Have you ever been on it? Is this Apple Net? Yeah. I haven't been on it, but I refuse to go back. Come on, Tom. For the first we, time. we both left dramatically, so we can't go back. That's right. This won't be as dramatic for you. Dramatically. By just exiting. It's just dramatic. <laughs> just a small act. Any, okay, let's, any exit of that listserv is dramatic. You haven't exited, so you can you don't have to return. You can just join it real calm, cool like. Um, I, I remember when uh, Dave Cooper uh, said the racist and sexist things. Mm-hmm. And that was, I mean, there's been several like AppleNet dust-ups that were like, that rippled down to me who's never been on there, and that was one of them. Yeah. Was there a particular Was there a particular dust up that y'all just said no moss to? Mine was some was something with Dave Cooper. I'm pretty sure. Some, but someone who's now dead, so I won't drag their name, uh, said uh, used a line literally when people were talking about or like racial justice organizing. He, uh, they said, "Let's keep our eye on the prize." Oh damn. <laughs> Which obviously is a quote from the civil rights movement, <laughs> um, and uh, well, it's pretty rough. Well, um, I don't know how this article fared in that world, but it did it did make the rounds on Twitter and in the other app, Appalachian, whatever world. Before we get started, do you mind if I go pee real fast? Every time. <laughs> um. All right. Okay. So let's get to the topic at hand. Um, the war on drugs, really. The war on drugs. Uh, the drug here being philosophy. Um, politi- <laughs> Politico. What teaching ethics in Appalachia taught me about bridging America's partisan divide. So. Um, all right. I have so many thoughts about this. None of them good. And not. And this is just not the default hater setting. This is really, really dumb. Oh, there's a few things I want to get out of the way before we start. The first is that it's totally acceptable to not have any commentary on this at all. This might be the first thing that we've read on here that I just don't even know if I have anything to say about it because it kind of just speaks for itself. (laughs) It is banal in such a way that, yeah, that it doesn't even like... You know how like we've said that like Joe Biden's running for president in 2004? Yeah. Yeah. This guy is trying to fix politics in 2004. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. But he thinks he thinks he stumbled upon the secret equation. Oh, yeah. And Politico... And he thinks he's done it. He thinks he's done it by echoing the political sentiments of a kid that grew up quail hunting. <laughs> <laughs> and... and Southern pursuit that everybody does in the South. Yeah, and who said he would be a Trump supporter if he was old enough to vote, which brings me to my next point. Every kid in this article, and so I really had to go through and sort of try to excise as much out of this article as I could that put any kind of blame on these kids because these are kids. Right. Um, And so it's... not on any kids. No, so it's hard. It's like, it's hard to actually... He made it really difficult because he chose as his sort of like protagonists these kids whose ideas are still forming and who don't quite know what they believe in yet Um, and so while we read this it's important to realize who the target here is it's not 
it's not the kids in the piece, even though a lot of them have a lot of dumb ideas. But look, you're a kid. That's <laughs> part of it. It's part of it. The target is this dumbass and his friends. Yeah. Evan Mandery. Well, um, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'll have this comment for like. <laughs> no, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, I'm just amazed that this guy who's taught at all these prestigious places and everything, and this is just sort of fortifies my whole uh, disillusionment with academia. This guy seems to have been convinced by a kid, a quail hunting kid whose brain is still growing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that is very accurate. Okay, so let's dive in, shall we? On the first day of my Justice in America seminar at Appalachian State University, I offer a deal to a student named Forrest Myers. I explain that I'm a tough grader and that the class average will be a, around a B minus. I'll give you an A, I say. All you have to do is designate someone to get an F. The other students laugh nervously while Forrest considers the deal. I've asked this question at the beginning of every semester for over 20 years, mostly to liberal Northeasterners at Harvard and the City University of New York. It's a good starting point because it tends to show commonality. The beginning of ethical thinking is to accept that other people's interests matter. In all my years of teaching, I've never had anyone take me up on my offer. But I've come here seeking dis difference, not similarity. By here, he means <coughs> Boo, North Carolina, the South, Appalachia. Good old Asheville. The 2016... That's that's funny that he's like picked a place to work based on a social experiment he wanted to conduct. <laughs> that's very weird, don't you think? Well, it's also weird because like later in the piece I think he says like I expected a lot of my students to have conservative views that reflected the area in which we teach. And it's like, do you not know what a fucking university is? Like anybody <laughs> can go to a university like <laughs> Great, like most of those kids aren't going to be from the surrounding area. Well, I guess, oh, actually, statistically, most of them probably will be, but a lot of them are also probably going to be from, like, I don't know, fucking Washington. I almost went to App State growing up in New Mexico. So, like, anybody can fucking go to college. Anybody can go to App State. Yeah. And the other thing, too, I think is, like, uh, you know, how he points out that he's like Appalachian State, founded by former conservative generals like every fucking institution in this country wasn't founded by some slave on an asshole from massachusetts <laughs> to fucking texas or even harvard i mean like right that's exactly. the weird thing yeah you're right he does profile app state as like being founded by a confederate general it's like remember like georgetown and harvard and all these universities like well, Harvard was founded by like Cotton Mather or some shit. Yeah, I I don't know, but it was definitely like built with slave labor, and right, and yeah, administered sure. and run with slave and labor. People that thought that black people were literal demons. Right, right. Um, so I've come here seeking difference, not similarity. The 2016 election exposed a national rift so deep that it feels as if even reasonable conversation is impossible. I'm a liberal New Yorker, but I know that plenty of people on both sides of the political spectrum worry that this divide poses an existential threat to the American Democratic Project. On the most controversial issues, race and immigration, we've lost the capacity for compromise because we presume the most sinister motives about our opponents. I've arrived here in the fall of 2018 hoping to find a wider range of views, not to change anyone's opinions, but rather to see whether there remain principles and a shared language of ethics that bind mm -hmm. us together. <clears throat> My God. Shared language of ethics that bind people together. 
here's the thing about these like the liberals like commitment to both sides ism is like like we shouldn't want to find commonality with people that belong to a genocidal racist death cult that's all conservatism <laughs> all that it has been like like have an analysis of who your opponent is and liberals can't because they have to have conservatives to exist uh-huh you know what I'm saying? Leftists, we don't have to have conservatives to exist. In fact, I would prefer it if they didn't exist. In fact, if you hold conservative views, I'd go so far as to say that you will be targeted and persecuted. <laughs> <laughs> or at With least... Extreme prejudice. Right, or like, at least marginalized. something to be afraid of at some point. Right, right. Well, we're going to get into that because this article is a... It really helps you peel back the layers of where that worldview and um, approach comes from. Yeah. So he says, I'm curious, is everyone else in the class, about how Forrest is going to answer? I, I, I swear to God, I think I know this kid, Forrest. <laughs> also, I promise you, nobody else in the class is curious how he's going to answer. They're all thinking about, like, fucking jacking off and playing Fortnite. And <laughs> <laughs> whatever else they're doing. I'd rather get the grade on my own merit, Forrest says. And I don't want to have anyone mad at me because I gave them an F. The offer's losing streak intact. I extend it to every student in the class. Raise your hand, I say, and you'll get an A. All you have to do is point to someone who will get an F. No hands go up. With a young woman named Sienna Lafone, I sweeten the offer. I'll give everyone in the class an A, including her. She simply has to pick one student to get an F. Sienna says she won't do it. Why not, I ask. Because it's not fair, she replies. What's going on, I ask. If someone accepts the deal, the class as a whole will be better off. In the language we'll develop during the semester, it's a utilitarian no-brainer. The class GPA will rise from 2.7 to near 4.0. Still, no one bites. A student named Jackson finally says, I think we should just earn what we get. These an <laughs> these answers. Uh, uh, the boot really, yeah, really putting your neck out there, Jackson. These answers, with the exception of some Southern accents, sound almost oh identical to ones that I hear from my typical class at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. <laughs> of course, we're still in the realm of hypotheticals. It'll be several weeks until we get to late-term abortions, gun bans, and the death penalty. Donald Trump's name has yet to be spoken. The conversations will no doubt become more fraught as things get more real. Okay, so finding a place to teach ethics in the South was more difficult than I had imagined. My initial idea was to go to the most remote school that would have me, Jesus. but most don't even offer an ethics course. This remote. So this motherfucker like tried to go to some like rural Bible college in like, Virginia somewhere, and they just were like, "What?" They were not hiring. Yeah, and also, okay, I, I, I'm trying to decide right now if right now is the place to talk about the um. What would the word be? The methodological. Okay, well, there's that. <laughs> but also the methodological problems with ethics courses and with this approach <laughs> to a sort of epistemology. Um, because, like, what he's saying is, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of ethics courses taught in the South. And he, he doesn't, he's not making any kind of 
conclusion there, but I kind of wonder if he wants you to draw the conclusion. Like, oh, look, they're not teaching ethics in the South. Hmm. Um, what does that say? Hmm. What does that mean? And so when we get to the trolley qu- question, which these people have a massive raging heart on for, well, we'll talk about that. The philosophy department of a community college in rural Tennessee was interested until the administration balked at my qualifications. They'd have accepted a degree in religion, but not one in law. When I stumbled upon Appalachian State, the school immediately seemed like a good fit, open to me and the kind of conversation I wanted to foster. Boone feels like any other college town, but Boone is a little blue island in a sea of red. You'd have to drive about 30 miles to find another polling district that voted for Hillary Clinton, and there are only a total of five within a 75-mile radius. Ah, uh, yes, Hillary Clinton, that um, well-known bastion of uh, <laughs> leftist thought in <laughs> subversion. <laughs> in the aftermath of the 2016 election, I read widely, and somewhat unsatisfyingly, to try and understand the root causes of polarization— J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy moved me, and it's impossible to read George Packer's The Unwinding, which takes place largely in North Carolina after the Great Recession, without being unsettled. You said Hillbilly Elegy moved him? Hillbilly Elegy moved him. Fuck me up. He was moved, bro. Um, Inspired. Yeah, no, okay, so this is the part I was talking about earlier. Coming in, I assume some of my students would reflect the conservatism of the surrounding region, and others the liberalism generally prevalent among college students. What I didn't know is whether my students, and young people generally, are predestined to sort themselves into those mutually loathing tribes, or if a shared conversation about foundational ethical beliefs could alter their views of people with whom they disagree. Dude, this is an interesting... I mean, I hadn't really thought about this the first time I read this, but now I'm thinking about it. Like, it's interesting to look at how liberals think people form political views and ideas. Like, to them... I don't think class is mentioned in this entire article, except when he goes into his little thing about the Trump-loving kid. And even then, like, that kid's parents are, like, accountants or something. Like, Yeah, dad was, like, a Wake Forest-educated lawyer, and his mom was from California or something. Yeah, for these people, the way that you form political views really does come down to, like, the inputs you're receiving in the school system and and by that i mean if you're getting a rigidly uh, foundational um teaching in western philosophy to them that is like if you're not getting that you're conservative if you are getting that you're going to be enlightened and liberal right yeah that's right it's like the people like i think of bill richardson who like <laughs> is just one of those old liberals that just like live and die by the liberal arts education are you speaking yeah. of former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson? <laughs> Weisberg Architect Bill Richardson. Weisberg Architect Bill Richardson. Got it. <laughs> to be clear. Um, and so, as I mentioned that, this next, art, this next paragraph actually sums it up. My syllabus... <clears throat> so, again, just to reiterate, these, these people have... Class doesn't factor into their analysis on how people come to, or anything else for that matter, whether it's gender or, or race or anything really. Although they they are they will concede that they'll they'll concede that that like oh people have white privilege and that patriarchy exists, but you will never get them to admit that class might have something to do with some with all of this. Right. Yeah. Totally. So my syllabus pairs readings in classical philosophy: John Stuart Mill, Immanuel Kant, Aristotle. John Rawls, with modern policy dilemmas including abortion, affirmative action, and hate speech. 
and this is my favorite line of the whole article, I think. But inevitably, all journeys of ethical discovery begin with the trolley problem. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if that ain't true, I don't know what it is. (laughs) Oh, fuck. Like, they love the trolley problem. They fucking love it. How long has the trolley problem been around? (laughs) I don't fucking know, dude. Mm. Probably a couple, about a hundred years. It was probably cooked up in like the 1940s in a philosophy department at like MIT. Yeah, I mean, this is basically, remember when you were talking about um, the Mandarin? It's basically the yeah, Mandarin. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the Mandarin. It's that one, when was that? That was like episode, it was like in the episode 20 or 30. <laughs> a deep cut. It's a deep, deep tribulus cut. But yeah, yeah, go back and listen to that one. Uh, because it's the same basic principle. Yeah. It's the same basic concept. That was at the Ohio State. It was. That was at Ohio State. Also in an academic setting. Uh, shock. A trolley also is... Also an Appalachian school. Also an Appalachian school, correct. A trolley is barreling down the tracks to which five people have been tied, I explained during our second meeting. You can flip a switch and divert the trolley, but you'd kill someone else who's been tied to the sidetrack. I asked a young woman named Kirsten Davis what she would do. I probably would flip the switch because I know less people would be killed, she says. Almost all of her fellow students concur, albeit reluctantly. The notable exception is Jackson. You killed the one person, he says without hesitation. Jackson is wearing jeans, cowboy boots, and a Carhartt shirt. His baseball cap. He's got a ponytail. (laughs) His baseball cap, which he got... I I just want to pull off uh, uh, here for a second and say, again, just if I could just gently, uh, you know, just sort of rib Jackson here a little bit. I knew so many Jacksons in college. There's that one conservative contrarian in all of your classes. Yeah. And this guy's him. This guy's him. He's just a country boy. <laughs> and he's, the, just, he's just a country boy drives an eighty thousand dollar truck with a lift kit. Yes, and utility for his job. <laughs> and the way that the professor fetishizes him in this story is fucking fascinating. It's bizarre. It is so truly it's bizarre. Like he changed his worldview based on this fucking rootin' tootin' conservative in his class. I mean, just upended everything he thought was right. <laughs> Right, right. These are the dumbest people alive. Not Jackson, but although that's probably true too. But like these kinds of liberals. Well, Jackson says this later in the story, but the reason he went to App State was because he knew he'd meet a lot of liberals in his class and he wanted to be the guy that like stood out and like challenged his thinking was challenged. But what he means by that, and again, I'm. Well, what you mean by that is App State's the only place to fucking take you. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, went to, I went to Moorhead State for the same reason. Trust yeah. me. It, ain't because, it ain't because I had designs on being anything. <laughs> well, what I was going to say is that there are some, there are a lot of young conservatives, more of them on the sort of libertarian end of the spectrum, and the way this article gets into libertarianism is also fascinating but who have almost this sort of like pathology or need to be a contrarian in these types of situations mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying it, like yeah. it, and it has a sort of like intellectual foundation to it too um yeah. and it's hilarious because if you've ever been in a college classroom in a liberal arts college classroom you you've known a jackson or two yeah um 
So Jackson's wearing cowboy je- boots, uh, cowboy boots, jeans, Carhartt shirt, baseball cap, um, which he got on a trip to Yellowstone. Um, it's clear that Jackson will be a force. The distinction he's drawing is smart. No one had to get an F in my first example, but more importantly, it's clear that he likes this kind of intellectual jousting. I return to Kirsten and change the facts. It's her mom who's tied to the tracks. I'm going to save my mom, obviously, Kirsten replies, but I would feel bad. Utilitarianism can take you to dark places. It certainly has no room to accommodate youthful sentimentality. Now, I say, the trolley is loaded with nuclear weapons. Five million people will die in a fiery inferno, including innocent babies, unless Kirsten throws the switch. Oh my god. I probably would save my mom, to be honest, she says. Most of the students nod their heads in agreement, voting for mothers over cities. But Jackson once again stands out. He says he'd kill his mom or even a baby if it meant saving more lives. I mean, someone has to die either way, and I'm fine putting my life, even if, I, even if I had to spend the rest of my life in prison, to save the five versus the one. Let me go back to the opener here, and let me just say that what socialism is, is we should give Jackson the F so we could all get A's. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you do. Like, so if anybody out here, if you're in an ethics class and you've got some good professor like this, pick up the worst guy in your class. It's usually the guy, decked out in Carhartt, trying to just be the country boy, contrarian guy. As an eighty thousand dollar truck with a lift kit that again he doesn't use for any sort of work purposes or anything. <laughs> yeah, it's tell that motherfucker and say give us all A's and then just there we go. Absolutely, and it's fucked that he only gives that option at the beginning of the class before they all get to know each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> give this option a month in, somebody's going down. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it's fucking Jackson. Good point. That's a really good point. And and maybe this is a good point to sort of dig in a little bit into the methodolo- methodology of the trolley problem, because here's what fucking ki- here's what pisses me off so much about this. Pro- proposing the trolley problem to a class of eighteen year olds is not real life. Like you no. learn literally nothing about somebody by their answer on the trolley problem. And you know why? Because in a room with other students, every student is going to be virtue signaling or triangulating their response to how they think other people are going to be responding and how they're going to be perceived. You might be able to get a more accurate reading if you did it individually, one-on-one, maybe in your office, but even then... Or it's just a test question. Or it's just a test question. (laughs) But even then, like... The answer to the trolley problem tells me nothing about who you are as a person because that's not how real life works. When you're in that situation, which 99.9999% of us will never be in, none of us will ever have to choose between killing our mom or 5 million people getting nuked to death. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yes, your answer to that hypothetically says nothing about you as a person. Like, uh, even the way that you act in that scenario, if you did have to do that, says nothing about you as a person. <laughs> because, uh, like, that's an impossible choice. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. So, like, they're hard on for the trolley problem is a huge issue I have with this. And it is this, it's this hilarious, like, it, it shows you this hilarious sort of, like, um, dedication to Western philosophy that, like, prioritizes um, empiricism and and, uh, rationality and all this, where it's just, like, I don't know. That's just, like, a sort of, like, flawed, in my opinion, um, method of trying to understand a person. 
Also, what I would say, too, if that was ever raised in a classroom I was in, I would just go on like a 30-minute filibuster about our crumbling infrastructure. <laughs> well, we got to make good choices in the first place if we just had, you know, adequate infrastructure. <laughs> filibuster. <laughs> well, dude, he's grandstanding in his class. Of we, need more, like, we need more like uh, leftists. Uh, what's the guy's name? Jackson? Jackson's. <laughs> Well, this... like the, the, the contrarians that are just just there to just ask the more important question. This is an interesting point because socialists, anybody to the left of Hillary Clinton, does not factor in this story at all. At not all. even not once, not even lip service or anything. Mm-hmm. So it's like maybe if you ask the socialists the trolley problem, they would probably say, "I would fix things to where people don't have to make those kind of decisions in the first <laughs> place." Right. <laughs> So we right. the world, Yeah, they would say, well, the world's messy, but the world doesn't have to be messy. We choose to make it messy to keep people in power. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. None of the suffering that we have, like, the only thing we should be at the mercy of in this society is, like, viruses and, like, germs. And even we can combat those, you know, with the right investments and whatever. Yeah. Imagine living in a society where, like, the worst thing that might happen to you in your life is, like... You get eaten by a bear. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty bad. I was going to say, yeah, you die. You of, die. Your natural causes. <laughs> yeah. After 85 years. Okay. I haven't known Jackson for long, but I believe that he would sacrifice himself for the greater good, and I can see that his classmates believe it, too. Even if they don't share his willingness to throw the switch on a family member, they see him as principled, not cruel. It's a type of selflessness and consistency that seems lacking in contemporary discourse. This paragraph makes me want to grind my teeth. No, it's not. No, the fuck, it's not. This get to what I'm oh, saying. God, this guy's contrarian. That's yeah. it. There is no philosophy behind this. Like when they ask what he reads, he reads Chris Kyle. <laughs> if anything, he's more of a sociopath than any of them. Exactly. That's... No, no, no. What it is, what it is, is he learned early on at a certain point that he needed to be different from everybody else, and the only way that can be expressed is by being a huge asshole. <laughs> right. That's it. That's it. But not, there's other ways to do that. Well, how? What? What lifts the collective? What would be best for all of us? But his is like, no, we all should just, you know, we all should just get what we deserve according to our merits and our, like, what we're willing to put in. And it's like. Actually, even deeper than that, Tom, if you listen to what he's saying, he said he would sacrifice his mother or his child. And what that indicates to me is this sort of like savior complex. It's almost like, yeah, it's almost like. He's not sacrificing himself for the greater good. He's doing it in in a hypothetical. That's not the same thing as real life. If Jackson has half a brain, he will be like, you know, like, who was the guy that read that bat shit like the whites are dying out speech? Oh, Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley, yeah. Yeah. Like, these guys that, like, that liberals also, that liberals also have sort of um, legitimized... You know what I mean? Yeah. Like by, by by like not like being more aggressive about the like the conservative question. Yeah, I don't know. I hate them all. Um, well, it's it's a weird that sentence. Um, it's a type of selflessness and consistency that seems lacking in contemporary discourse, in which people are too willing to prioritize what's politically expedient over fundamental values. There's two things I want to say about that. The first is that that's a great example of how. Um, it's a great example of how weirdly. Have how he's fetishized this kid, 
You know what yeah. I mean? Like he's he's he. That's why he moved here. Right. He's found <laughs> the kid that he's yeah. that he's been looking for. His great white well that will explain the divisiveness and and everything else wrong with American society. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being having the best education on earth, and this is the best you can do. <laughs> In terms of your oh, I know. That's what's pheno- that's what's fascinating to me about this. It's like this guy teaches at John Jay College philosophy, Harvard, and, and like this, all these places. This is his, This is what Western philosophy will do to your brains. Which is why Politico printed his ass. Yeah, <laughs> in the How to Fix Politics yeah. segment under Charles Koch. Um. The second oh, thing, the second thing about it, it, that's funny that's funny to me is um, in which people are too willing to prioritize what's politically expedient over fundamental values. I'm pretty sure if you ask this guy who he voted for in the 2016 election, he would tell you Hillary. Um, and if you asked him to explain why not Bernie, he would probably say something like electability, <laughs> which to yeah. me that that is politically expedient over fundamental values. But yeah, whatever. He said, it's what feels wrong, for example, about liberal intolerance of dissenting speech, especially on campus, or the rush to punish alleged sexual predators without due process. And it's what feels equally wrong about conservatives who claim to revere life and yet can display such brazen cruelty to immigrants and prisoners, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the near unanimity with which is this— my man, Is my man a little bit concerned with cancel culture? <laughs> I, could, I would say I'd be— Win, uh, willing to venture, yes. Oh, that's yeah. about to get good. We got to. I just thought that, right? like, alleged sexual predators without due process. That kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, the I put the highlight in here to uh, indicate a segment that I want to skip over, kind of, and give you the. Mm-hmm. Uh, a summary of that's why it's red right <laughs> the their unanimity with which the students responded to the trolley question is notable so this is we've finally arrived at what is the beginnings of his thesis which is that conservatives and liberals across the board respond to the trolley question with near unanimity with near uh you know pretty much the same answer right. except for one political group you want to take a guess what that political group is tanya Libertarian. Get a hold of yourself, Tom. My bad. I mean to tell you something. There's a little bit of a delay. <laughs> so he tells us about how there's an entire um there's an entire field of discipline in the academy called trolleyology. Oh my god. Uh oh, which these motherfuckers. <laughs> which occupies its own niche in you social know, psychology you know how research. Bolsonaro is like like rounding up all the Marxists out of the academy in Brazil. <laughs> if when we have our day, we're rounding up all the trolleyologists. <laughs> <laughs> Putting them on a trolley. A list, a, a list gets released. Trolleyologists. <laughs> we'll, we'll put all the trolleyologists on a big like <laughs> On, like, on a big trolley. trolley. And then we will make them make the trolley choices. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, so the trolleyology professor is a guy named Jesse Graham at University of Utah. And he says that um, overall liberals and conservatives are similar. Libertarians, however, are a different story. He, he says, we don't talk much about them, not members of the political party with that name, but rather people who believe in limited government. There are a lot of the latter. Um, estimates range between 77% and 
seven percent and twenty two percent, and they merit greater discussion. Do they? Um, yeah. <laughs> Graham explains. No, go ahead. Oh, here was my thing. It's like, is there possibly another group of you know, sort of on the left end of things that actually have a dog in the race that's polling better than Bill Weld? <laughs> No. I mean, really? Like, why? why, why? Oh, anyway, carry on. Well, this is the thing. If this guy was a libertarian in writing this, I'd be like, okay, well, that's what you believe in. You're a dumbass, but whatever. But that's yeah. th- he's not. He's a liberal writing this, which makes him an even bigger dumbass that he's giving them this, this much credence. Yeah, this paired very nicely with the speak your piece. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Speaking as they so rarely do. <laughs> And they they think that this is no. some type of that they've uh, go ahead. They're they're some white hats. They think they've come in on capes yes. to just level the playing field here. Let's get back to the basics, <laughs> okay? So Graham, the trolleyology professor, explains that the libertarian cognitive style. This is such a funny word. <laughs> <laughs> He explains that the libertarian cognitive style is cerebral rather than emotional. Libertarians are far and away the most likely to say, yeah, push the guy off. They just see it as a math problem, he tells me. They have no squeamishness about having to kill the person. It's coldly calculating, but also, arguably, rigorously ethical. I like, he like cast this like it's a superpower or something that libertarians have like they they can like lift above the scrum and like see it for what it is (laughs) as graham tells me this i can't help but think that efforts to unpack what separates red states from blue states haven't been careful to differentiate between conservatives and libertarians Venn diagrams of voters generally categorize voters as Republicans and Democrats or liberals and conservatives. But as is becoming increasingly apparent, the cool-headed libertarian in my classroom who's willing to sacrifice his mother for the greater good doesn't fit neatly into any of these circles. It occurs to me that if America is going to come together, it's going to have to reckon with Jackson Cooter. (laughs) I'll go ahead and tell you right now, I've been cold day in hell for I reckon with Jackson fucking Cooter. (laughs) the more I think about this trilogy bullshit is it just um, I guess it goes back to you talking about them having no that there's class doesn't come up here at all but it's just so it's insane to me that this man is so flippant and just a fucking maniac that he doesn't take into consideration that there are plenty of people making life or death decisions that are forced to make life and death decisions in their lives all the time every day yeah (laughs) poor people this world over are making all kinds of decisions that wreck their life like about whether their family members will get medicine or whatever just it's fucking insane oh yeah well like for him it's a parlor debate Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just in the same way that as he goes through this and gets into gun control and especially the segment on abortion, because that's the part that pissed me off the most in this article. The section on abortion is hands down the worst section in this, because essentially what he's getting at. And correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, you may remember this better than I am, because I, I can't get into it because this is a long article. It's like 5000 words. Um, but essentially what he's saying on the section on abortion is that no one is currently trying to come to a compromise on abortion. And so in his mind, what's the fucking compromise in his mind? I think what he means by that is that late term abortion is, is a step too far, but early term abortion is, uh, is okay. 
Um, so, like, what they need to come together on is maybe an abortion at, like, maybe 24 weeks or something oh, like that. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's kind of, like, what I understand him to be saying. Like, a give a little, get a little thing. Yes, like, in his mind, it really is a spectrum, and you meet in the middle, literally, at, like, 24 weeks, and you're like, this is compromise. Why aren't you people compromising with your abusers? Seriously? Why aren't you trying to meet them halfway? It's Stockholm Syndrome. Um... So he gets into the thing about gun gun control. He says, if one looks and listens carefully, a consensus reveals itself across a whole diversity of fields on the importance and untapped power of listening. The names and nuances of these approaches to careful listening differ, but they share two basic qualities. The first is to listen with an open mind. NYU psychologist Carol Gillian, Gilligan, who began the Radical Listening Project in 2017, Oh Radical listening. <laughs> oh, I've been on a listening project here and there. Love that. Love that. The Radical Listening Project. Only ask open-ended questions. <laughs> is that what they do? I don't. I can't remember. That but there are brutal. whole there are whole books about how to listen. Just shut the fuck up. <laughs> how about that? <laughs> God. Um. University of Michigan professor Donna Kaplowitz practices an approach known as intergroup dialogue um, and calls it generous listening. So we have radical listening and generous listening. Um, the second quality is that all these approaches, in one way or another, ask the listener to inhabit another person. The aim is – this is one of my favorite car- paragraphs in here. The aim is to create a space in which you can admit, let in, another person's voice. It's a way of stimulating empathy. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. Atticus Finch tells Scout in To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, Where the fuck did that come from? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, we weren't going to make it through this without echoing To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> I know the only thing that surprises me about what didn't shake out in here, like I thought that opening gambit about like pick the person that gets an F was going to be some rebuke of socialism. Right. Mm. That's that's the only thing that actually it wasn't that that you know that would have wouldn't have surprised me if it would have been. There's the thing, Tom. This guy is so removed from any class concerns at all. That I don't think socialism is a thing he even acknowledges exists. I think he just sees liberals and conservatives and libertarians. Like, that's the way his brain's, like, cordons off the populace. Well, there are, the majority of liberals think that they're as far left as you can get. I know. It's insane. Yeah, rare is the few that are like, yeah, I can't get on board with some of this out there stuff. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought this is a hilarious line. An emerging body of research shows that Finch or Harpy, Harper Lee was right. <laughs> like many people, it's like when Trump said that many people are learning about Frederick Douglass. It's like <laughs> many people, folks, are saying Atticus Finch was right. He might have been right about it. Um, yeah, curious things start to happen to people when they listen generously. At the most superficial level, one hears things that he or she might not like. But one also hears the sincerity of people's convictions, the authenticity of their experiences, and the nuance of their narratives. Being open is transformative because, almost inevitably, one finds that the stories they've been told about what people believe oversimplify reality. It's like, it's the notion that you should listen to someone who's telling you that you deserve to have a boot on your neck 
is the most sucker shit I can I can possibly imagine. And the fact that someone is out there teaching kids that that you should be listening to people who tell you it's okay that you don't have rights or that you that it's okay that you're being marginalized and increasingly having the boot put to your neck. That's it's not only I mean I don't know, it's immoral, but it's it's just incredible to think about. <laughs> I don't know. The section the section on abortion though contains I think the best line in this though cuz it opens up if you teach ethics for long enough, you develop a physician's sensitivity to areas that can be probed for tenderness. Wow. <laughs> probed for tenderness. This motherfucker. Oh, yeah. No, by this, he, I mean, he's talking about abortion. Because, like, for a lot of these ethics professors, abortion... But what a lot of choice of words. Yeah, oh, probed for tenderness. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, for them, abortion is the big ethical uh, quandary, right? It's like, um, because like, and I don't, I forgot to pull it out here because, um, one of the students in his class is basically saying like, well, um, it's, it comes down to a woman's right to choose, but then he goes in and editorializes afterwards and is like, <clears throat> yeah, but can't you, once I pointed out to the student that the baby might be helpless, um, and incapable of choosing on its own, if it wants to live or die, she quickly backed down on that. And it's like... That's the the question here isn't about a child or a child's right to life because like if you believe in science like this guy he says he's a philosophy professor or whatever he would understand that a baby is not life it's an organ of a woman's body that can be removed it's not life it's like an appendix that will soon one day be a person but not now <laughs> Exactly. Now it's kind of a parasite that sucks up your vitamins and stuff. To me, and and truly though, if this really was an ethical dilemma, it's like okay, well then weigh the two. Is it really more important for you to preserve a life than to deprive a woman of her choice? Because that is the choices here. You like these trolley problems? Well, you have two choices. It's either you you take away a woman's shoes or you preserve something that is might not even be life scientifically but we we fucking know conservatives don't care about children's lives oh <laughs> that's look the at thing. how they uh, there's just it's no debate that's they don't why he's so about stupid life. though they don't care about life yeah. he's co he's completely conceding that to them by saying oh we can compromise on this we can come to a point of consensus okay well Let's pass universal health care and all these things for children. <laughs> Compromise. He says, I left my experience uh, at App State with a richer understanding of Southern conservatives and libertarians, but more significantly with great optimism, even exuberance about the untapped potential of experiences that teach people how to talk productively about their differences. Even after a career spent moderating com conversations on controversial issues, I learned how to listen better and was changed by the stories I heard. Imagine if, instead of requiring a swim test for college students or gym for middle schoolers, we required students to sit in a room with a diverse group of people and listen oh to the stories God. of their life. <laughs> Radical listening. If I wanted to prepare my children to live as citizens in a democratic society, nothing would be more valuable than to teach them to listen. <laughs> And Listen to your abusers, folks. They have a lot of good things to say. They have a lot of good things to say to you. They have your best interest 
at heart. Yeah, your bosses, they know what they're talking about. Just the dumbest shit, man. So, like, what started out as this thing that kind of, like, fetishized Appalachia and, like, he was searching for the true um, nugget of truth about divisiveness in America quickly just became this, I don't know, peon to capitulation. Do you know what I mean? Just this radical manifesto for capitulation and, um, I don't know, surrender and not actually fighting for anything, but just sitting down and listening to people. It's fucking absurd. Yeah, it's, it, it is amazing how that, uh, this time we're in has produced taking people that are supposed to be sort of these intellectual giants or even just like brave people and just rendered them like <laughs> basically patrons of <laughs> the sort of managerial uh, overclass, you know, it's like, uh, like, isn't like, uh, um, what's, uh, what's their name? Sulkowicz that did the, the, um, bad protest at Columbia. Did you see this thing this past oh, week? Oh, Emma. Like, Emma, Emma, yeah, Emma Sulkowitz, yeah. And like, Emma's like a libertarian now or something. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, it's just like, I just wonder like what, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm, and I don't want to say that in a way that trivializes what she went through, but like also I just, I don't know, I don't know how you arrive at, at there's at there being some substance to some of this stuff. I, because you don't have a stake in it. I mean, like, I, I, from what I told, I read that article, that profile of her, and she seems very wealthy. She seems like she came from a very rich family. Now, it's not discounting what happened to her at Columbia because that was horrendous. But at the same time, if you're very wealthy, what does wealth allow you to do? It allows you to escape all the fucking nightmares that the, everybody else has to deal with on a day to day basis. Yeah. It's the nitro boost in your fucking privilege pack, pack or whatever yeah. the fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, anyway, I think that that's the thing here. I think that that's the the case with this guy. Like, I think that he's so far removed from any real world struggles or concerns. Yeah, this guy lives on a fucking cloud. Yeah, I don't know. It's pretty. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Bleak. Yeah. Well, um, so what teaching ethics in Appalachia taught him about bridging America's partisan divide? You can skip it. You can see it. Skipped. Skipped. <laughs> I used to smoke weed with this guy in high school named Colin Cooper, and if he was mad at you and you were standing next to him, he would pass you over and pass the blunt to the guy next to you. He'd be like, skipped. <laughs> He'd go, skipped. <laughs> skipped. <laughs> so skip that one. Um, all right. Anything else before we go? We're over in an hour. Let's uh, let's let's pack this one in. Any um, any final thoughts? Closing words. I, I, I think it was something. This is not to call into question the Appalachianness or the hollerness of Boone, North Carolina, but I think it's interesting. This guy was like, "I'm gonna go to Appalachia and then picked Boone." <laughs> I lived in Boone. It's nothing like. I go to Utah, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. TJ, I think it's a Utah, bitch. <laughs> 
Teach, teach ethics at Southeast Community Technical College. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely insane. All right. Uh, well, I guess we'll uh, see you next time. Anything to plug? We have anything to plug, Tanya? Mm, I don't know. I don't think so. All right, y'all. Well, we'll see you next time. All right. Bye.